Hello and welcome to the First Prez Mommy podcast, the show for people on the go who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert speaks about Mark 8, 27 through 9, 8. Jesus calls us to pivot away from using power to serve ourselves, toward using our power to serve him, by serving others. Let's hear today's message. I, I celebrate, if you are not aware, that on Friday night, something special happened in the life of our church. We were uh, given the opportunity to host a couple of musicians from the symphony, Toledo Symphony Orchestra. And so in the chapel, gathered by candlelight, were 140 people. I don't know that the chapel has held 140 people uh, in quite a while. Um, I know it took a lot of work from uh, some of you to, to make that happen, and so I want to say thank you and celebrate it. Uh, it was a great opportunity for us to hold out the life of our church to our community. Um, I celebrate it having seen some pictures, but I was not there. I was, as I often am in these months, at a basketball game. My youngest son uh, plays basketball for Maumee High School, and so we were at Otsego on Friday night, and we lost. Um, it's okay. Um, we were also at a basketball game on Tuesday as I was beginning to think about this passage. And, and something I saw connected in my mind with what God has put before us this morning. If you've been to a high school basketball game, maybe you have seen, it happens frequently, that in a break moment, maybe it's halftime, maybe it's between the JV and the varsity game, little kids will come onto the court, and they'll be in jerseys. It, I presume these were kids. Uh, on Tuesday night, I saw this. Kids, two different colored jerseys. They must have been teams on peewee leagues there uh, in that community, and they played this game until the older kids came out. I say they played a game because I don't think what I saw was really basketball. There was a ball, and they were on a court, and yes, they had jerseys, but, but seldom did anyone shoot the basketball, and even worse, though they dribbled on occasion, the minute any other child got close to the one who had the ball, guess what they did? Right? It reminded me of, I spent many years coaching my kids in basketball. It was a terrible thing. I was a high school wrestler. I don't know what I'm doing, but I, 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 I tried. And the hardest thing to do was to get a young child to learn not to travel and instead to pivot. Do you know what it means to pivot? When someone comes to guard you, pivoting means to take one foot, plant it firmly on the ground, never move it, and then... Move the other so that you can pass the ball. A young child uh, had a really hard time grasping that. Well, this morning, as I looked at this passage, I recognized how pivotal it is. In the, in the gospel, uh, we're, we're in chapter 8. We're halfway through this 16-chapter gospel. It's, it's a pivotal moment. If you read the narrative, you'll notice for the first time in the passage Jason just read to us, Jesus will foreshadow his passion, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then if you track 
the geography, the towns that he goes to, the, the path that he walks, from this point forward, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the crucifixion. This is a really important passage. But even more than that, I want us to recognize the great pivot that God calls us to make in this passage, where Jesus calls us to have one foot firmly planted in the recognition of who he is, as he did with Peter. Peter, who do people say I am? He has to know that before then calling him to move in whatever way God directs as we are called to serve him. Keep that image in mind. I think it might help you as we work our way through the passage this morning. If you didn't already, could I invite you to open to Mark chapter 8? Again, we'll begin at verse 27. The passage this morning is broken into three distinct sections. And oddly, the third section, the one that uh, gives us the title for the scripture this morning, the transfiguration, that's one I'm really not going to touch for the sake of time. But my hope is that everything that we talk about will point to the transfiguration and you'll go, oh, I kind of see why God might have done what he did in that moment. Nonetheless, we'll focus on chapter 8, verse 27, through chapter 9, verse 1. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord God, we do give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the way your word speaks to our everyday lives, revealing who you are and who you call us to be. Holy Spirit, come into this moment in power Reveal Jesus to us and help us to not just understand what we read, but to, to take it in in such a way that we leave this place hand in hand in relationship with our Lord, filled up with his presence, um, uh, with eagerness to serve and be faithful to him. It is in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Well, I want you to notice that this passage is all about power. It's all about power. If you think about the passage in the way that I framed it, from chapter 8, verse 27, especially to, to chapter 9, verse 1, you'll notice that it's all about power. But even the transfiguration, obviously, about power. If you look at chapter 9, verse 1, you'll notice the end of the passage that I'm looking at uses that word uh, as a punctuation point. In this kind of cryptic, hard-to-understand verse, we read, Truly I tell you, Jesus says, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with, what? Power, right. He's talking about power. Now, we might look at that verse and go, huh, what is he, Wait, the disciples... We'll get there. We'll get there. What I want you to notice is that this is all about power. Power ends the passage. Power begins it even though the word itself is not used. I'll, I'll point that out, but before we do, let's make sure we understand what we're talking about when we use the word power. In your mind's eye, just pause for a moment and ask yourself, how would I define the word power? What is it? The dictionary says this. 
Power is the ability to do or act, or related, a capability of doing or accomplishing something. Power has to do with our ability to control outcomes. Right? So if someone has a lot of power, then they have a lot of control over what's going to happen. They can make things happen as opposed to someone who doesn't have a lot of power. Uh, they are very vulnerable, really has, have no impact on outcomes, or at least so it seems. We are given all sorts of things that contribute to personal power. So think about your position in the world, in your community, in your business, your title. Those are certainly expressions of power. Wealth plays into power. The more wealth one has, the more ability they have to control outcomes. Physical strength is an expression of power. If you are bigger, stronger than someone else, you might be able to determine an outcome that you want in a situation that they cannot. Intelligence has to do with power. All of these things, they're not power themselves, but they factor into it. You understand what I'm saying? I think it's important that we recognize that. It's important we recognize that because when we look at the beginning of this passage and understand that it comes right after this moment where Jesus has given sight to a blind man, a moment that has come, in, come after Jesus raised a young girl from the dead or, or stopped a woman from bleeding where he has healed people. He, he's demonstrated incredible power. Then the question that's really raised at the beginning is, what does my power, Jesus asked, what does my power suggest to you about who I am? Peter answers for some and says, well, yeah, people are watching and they see this and they see that. Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're John the Baptist, people of significant power. But then Peter goes, I don't think they're right because I'm watching what you're doing. I see you raise the dead. I see you heal. I see you teach. I see what you do, and I know who you are. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Absolutely. He gets it right. This passage is all about power. Power at the end, power at the beginning, and Peter sees that. And Jesus acknowledges Peter's reply, verse 30, and says, yeah, you got it. Now don't tell anyone. When Peter said, you are the Messiah, he had a, he had a particular picture in mind that's really, really important for us to understand if we're going to grasp this passage. This picture in Peter's mind would have been in the mind of nearly all the first century Jews as they thought about the concept of Messiah. Who is this one who is coming? The best way that I can explain it to you is to put in front of you a, a passage from the Old Testament book of Daniel. If you're not familiar, Daniel is a, is a book that was written during the time of the exile when God's people uh, were exiled into Babylon, and Daniel was one of God's faithful people to whom God spoke and gave visions and, and worked through in, in pretty incredible ways. 
Look at what's written here, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Keep that phrase in mind, one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This passage is a a description of what the, the Jews were looking for in the Messiah. They had a particular understanding of what the Messiah would do, who he would be and, and and you see it here. I mean, could you imagine a more powerful person? This last week I just happened to when I was sitting on the couch rewatch Superman, Man of Steel, right? Really powerful. Not as powerful as this one. This is the Messiah. And he's given the title Son of Man in the book of Daniel. And and this is what Peter has in mind when he says, I know who you are. Based on the power that I see, you are the Messiah. You are the one who has come to rule over all the nations. And more importantly, you are the one who will rescue us from the Romans who who are oppressing us, who have enslaved us, who are dictating our lives. You are the one who's finally going to make everything right. And so surprise, surprise, when Jesus both affirms that and then goes on, verse 31, and says this, yeah, and the Son of Man, remember that phrase, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. How does that square with what we just read from Daniel? It doesn't, does it? I mean, you can empathize with Peter. When, on one hand, he gets the right answer, bing, 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 right? And then Jesus starts saying this. Yes, Peter, you're right. I am the Messiah, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is going to suffer, be rejected, be killed. Peter goes, no. 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 That's not the way it works. Do you notice the way Jesus responds to Peter? It might be the harshest rebuke in all of God's word. It's hard. Think about it. This is Peter. This is the one Jesus chose. This is is his right-hand man. This is the one who has left much of his life to follow him. This is the one who just got the right answer. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Why does he speak so harshly? Well, think about the irony and the incompatibility of what Peter is doing. 
Peter, on one hand, is looking at that passage from Daniel saying, this is you, Jesus. You are the one who has all dominion, all authority, all right to rule. This is you. And then at the very next breath, saying to Jesus, no, you can't exert your authority that way. No, this is the way you're supposed to do it, Jesus. No, I understand who the Messiah is, and you are a little bit confused. (laughs) In my reading, I I appreciated the way one of the uh, commentators put it. He says this, it's up in front of you. Uh, To say Christ, that's Peter's first confession, right? To say Christ to someone is to give up, first and foremost, the right to define what Christ means. If someone is Christ, then they have the authority to tell you what that means, right? And yet Peter confused that at the beginning. And though it's not the point of the message, I want to pause right here and recognize we do the same thing, don't we? Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. Yes, I, I want to I serve. But then when we get into a difficult moment of life, how many of us, at least in our spirit, will pause and go, Jesus, I think you're messed up. If you were really good, you would not have me go through this. Or I, I think you're out of control. Or this isn't right. I think I know better than you. How many of us think that? No hands, no hands, just... You've thought that, right? I know I have. And Jesus rebukes Peter more harshly than I could ever imagine. Why does he do that? Don't you think the harshness of Jesus' rebuke to Peter should suggest the importance of all that they are sharing in that moment? When I think about my own life, I can think of a few moments where someone that I deeply admired, appreciated, respected, even loved, (laughs) spoke really harshly to me. Moments like that, they stick with you because they're so important. It's like a coach saying, quit moving your pivot foot, right? Because if you don't learn that, You can't learn anything else in the game. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, before we talk about anything else, you must understand who I am. I am, as you said, Messiah and Lord. I am the Christ, and as such, I'm the one who tells you how it's going to be. Not the other way. With our foot firmly planted in the understanding of who Jesus is. The Messiah who came, he says, Mark 10, 45, not to serve, but to, or not to be served, but to serve. The Messiah who came to give his life as a ransom for many. Then, now, we can move on and say, all right, so how are we supposed to move? How are we supposed to follow him? That's the rest of the passage. Look at it. Pick it up at at verse 34. My blind eyes are right. How do we use the power that's been entrusted to us? We're going to understand what Jesus is saying. We need to recognize what's true about the world. I'm not trying to be overly dark or 
or critical of the world, but there is a, a common practice when we, when we think about the way the world coaches us to use power. Think about it. When we receive money, when we develop an education, get a degree, when we meet somebody and develop our personal networks, all these things that we talk about feed into someone's power, right? When we develop a talent, the world suggests that we use these things to do what? Elevate ourselves, right? Yeah, you're right. Make more money. Elevate ourselves. Change our station in life. Get the bigger house. Get the, bigger, get the better car. Whatever. To elevate ourselves. To promote our own life. To, to pursue, pursue our own fulfillment in life. But Jesus says, that's not my way. Look what he says, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple. What's a disciple? One word definition? Follower, right. Whoever wants to follow me must do this. They must deny themselves. So discipleship, following Jesus, begins with self-denial. Now, some have read this and misunderstood it as self-hatred, that if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to hate yourself and just try to, you know, no, 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 no. It's not self-hatred. It's self-denial. What's that mean? Well, it means like this. Uh, so, as I just said, whenever you, in the world, accumulate something, you know, money, talent, degrees, your first and natural inclination is to say, what am I going to do with this to promote myself, to promote my station, to make my life easier, better, whatever? Jesus says, if you are my follower, you will instead not ask the question, how will I use this to promote myself? You'll ask the question, I wonder why God has given this to me, introduced this person to me. Put me in this moment, given me this ability, entrusted to me these resources. That as followers of Jesus, our first assumption should be that it's not for us alone. Because if we're following Jesus, we're denying ourselves. Instead, we're going, hmm, he's given me this for a reason. And then... He says, if anyone is going to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross as they follow me. Now, I'm standing above a big, or beneath a big cross. The imagery of a cross is super familiar to us. But I want you to recognize in this passage, Jesus has not yet been crucified. The cross is not any sort of symbol of, of love or faith or anything like that. Oh, Jesus' hearers knew about the cross. They lined the roads in Rome. And they were objects of torture. They were the devices the Romans used as they 
many times unjustly, took from these Hebrew homes men and women, sometimes even children. They accused them. They penalized them. They forced them to take the cross section of the cross upon their shoulders and carry the cross to the designated place of their execution where they would then hang them and torture them until they're dead. And Jesus is saying to his followers, if you're going to come after me, it starts with denying yourself. And then you must Burden yourself in great and painful ways with great sacrifice. This is the only way to be my follower. He calls us to pivot from the way of the world to this radically different way. And friends, we have to see it. We have to recognize it for what it is. We can't sugarcoat it. This is terrible. Is it not? Think about it. Jesus is saying to Peter, the one that he hoped would come and set everything right, yeah, Peter, here's what you have to do. Deny yourself, give up everything that gives you any sense of personal power, and then subject yourself in any way I call you to in great pain and sacrifice and come follow me. And that's what he says to you and me. You really ought to be sitting in your seat right now going, what am I doing? Jagger, I look at you and you're just up here and you said these words. I want to say to you, what are you doing? This is crazy. Is it not? No one would do it. No one would do it if it were not for the promise that follows. Jesus says, verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He holds out this, this divine formula, if you will. It's totally counterintuitive. He says, if you, want, if you go about trying to accumulate your power and use it to save your own life, to promote your own life, you will end up losing it. But here's the secret. If you'll trust me, if you'll lose your life for me and for my gospel, you will find yourself saving it. He, he emphasizes this in the very next verse. Verse 36, what good is it, he says, for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? That word soul there, it's not wrong, but it's, it's helpful for you to notice it's the word psyche. And it, it has to do with the, our experience of life. It's not just that soul that we envision floating up into heaven. It's our experience of life here and now. It's the condition of living. It's health, happiness, exuberance, energy, vitality. He's saying, what good is it for you to, to try to build up your own sense of power and in so doing, lose life, the life that we all desire to live? As Jesus makes this statement, we know it's true. 
Not just because Jesus said it. Not just because it's in the scripture. But because all of us have experienced examples of this truth, this reality. Let me show you. Post-COVID, all the researchers are saying we are going through an epidemic of loneliness. Have you read that? Some of you are experiencing that. You just feel really, really lonely. Well, in that place, you might want to save your life. You are desperate for a friend, desperate for the affection of someone, desperate to have someone care about you. And so in the attempt to save your life, it might go something like this. Hey, I'll make a phone call and say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Don't you care about me? How about you come over? You might call your adult children and say, you really don't love me. If you did, you would send me more messages. Why don't you come over? You might say to a friend, come, 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 come. And what happens when you do that? People run as fast as they can. You know what I'm talking about? Just mild head nod. Just if you know, just don't give yourself away too much. I see you. Okay, all right, all right. If, on the other hand, we'll believe what Jesus says and go, all right, Lord, I'm not going to make it about my own feelings, my own friendship. If I have to walk this life alone, I'll walk it alone, and I desperately hope I find companionship in you. But because I'm following you, I'm going to reach out to somebody and say, hey, I was just thinking about you, and I want you to know I care. If you send a gift to somebody and just say, hey, I just want you to know I care about you. That's all. No strings attached. You don't have to do anything. What is likely to happen? people will turn and come and extend some sign of that very friendship that you're so desperate for. Same is true in worship, right? You might come into this space. If you are desperate to experience a worship service and save your life, you might come in with the attitude, oh, we better sing this song. And it be, better be sung that way. And then the people better be here. And these people better be next to me. And Pastor Clint better not preach longer than 20 minutes. Sorry. Pass that, right? You might come and you will only be frustrated. If you come with that mind. You will lose the very thing you were so desperate to find. If, on the other hand, you go, look, I'm here to worship Jesus. So that means as best as I can... I'm going to put my own desires aside. I'm going to try to enter and be conscious of other people. I'm going to sing out, though I can't hold a tune in a bucket, <laughs> because I know it encourages the person next to me. I'm going to pray for that little kid that's squirming in front of me, and I'm tempted to be distracted, but no, I'm going to... No, 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 no. All of a sudden, worship blessed you. I won't go too deep into this one, but it is Valentine's Day this week, right? Do we, do we recognize this is the very nature of the way God created us for intimacy and relationship? If you enter into relationship with your spouse and your heart's desire is for them to pleasure you, but if on the other hand, you enter into marriage in every aspect and say, I'm going to serve my spouse. 
and I don't really care what they do with me. Well, you will find life and love and romance and all of that. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus, this is true, and we know it to be. And all of it comes on the foundation of the cross. The one who gave up his own life literally for us. And in so doing, we find life eternal. That's what Jesus points to in verse, verse 38. I mean, he, he, we're saying this is, experience is true in this world, but make no mistake, he offers a word and a warning about the world to come as well. He said, if you spend your time and all that you have in this world to build up your own power, your life, not only will you lose it here, you'll lose it when I come. But if you'll spend this life denying yourself, sacrificing yourself, not only will you find life here, more than likely, but you will be welcomed by Jesus on the day he returns. I'm driving to the end, I promise. But do you notice how this is all, it's all about power. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't have the power to do this. If you're really honest with yourself and you're sitting there and you're going, okay, God has given me this much money and he's given me this much positional power and he's given me these resources and and if I hear correctly, I'm supposed to give them all up and I'm supposed to even sacrifice. I don't know that I can do that, at least to the extent I know I'm supposed to then you're right. None of us can. And that's why, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. This is God's work in and through us. He'll drive that point home in the in the transfiguration if you read on. He'll author it at the cross and in the resurrection. Therein lies the power. And as the church begins to be formed in the book of Acts, we're reminded of these words from Jesus himself to his disciples, to you and me. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. It isn't by your own will. It isn't by your own good intentions. It is by his power in you that all of this happens. And as he does it, yeah, we get to see the kingdom of God coming in beautiful and in amazing ways. Make no mistake, those those kids on Tuesday night, they had on jerseys. They were in a basketball court, but they weren't playing basketball. We can call ourselves Christians. We can take vows. We can gather in a sanctuary. But Jesus tells us, until we have one foot firmly planted in the understanding of who he is, he's the one with power. He's the one with authority. He is Messiah. And he came and gave his life, and he called us to do the same. Until we recognize that, and then we're willing to follow him, moving in whatever way his spirit directs us, we can't be his disciples. 
May the Holy Spirit come amongst us and help us as we seek to follow Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, boy, this is a hard teaching. It's why I think you got harsh with Peter. It's why we might be hearing some pretty difficult words ourselves and in our inner self. Lord, would you speak truth and grace? Would you call us to yourself? Would you remind us of who you are? Would you empower us by your spirit and give us the faith to take that next step that builds your kingdom and and honors you? For we want to see the kingdom of God come more fully into our world. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. We hope you've enjoyed our First Pres Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.org. Have a great week.